Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. There was one commentator who wryly noted that the first six chapters of Daniel are some of the easiest to interpret and apply, and the last six chapters of Daniel are some of the hardest to interpret and apply. And that is where we are today. So I think it would be appropriate that we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have given us such rich variety in revelation, overlapping pictures and visions which give us different angles of your working in world history and and your plan. Father, as we examine a, a small facet of that tonight, would you fill us with wonder? Would you fill us with joy and yearning? And even as we just look at some of the, the bigger picture things, some of them that may, may seem to be not so exciting on the surface, would it give us um, a backbone to see how you're working in history and how great and marvelous you are to be able to pray your kingdom come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve, could you put that first slide up there? So, a couple years ago, I was, okay, well, almost a decade ago, it was a decade ago, a decade ago, I was flying out to Sacramento for my train up before my third deployment overseas, and I was flying out and um, getting close to the destination, and I looked down, it was, it was further down than this, but I saw a picture of this lake, and this picture really doesn't do it justice. But I remember looking down at a still fairly high altitude, maybe 20,000, 15,000 feet, and it took my breath away. And you can see the, the blues and a little bit of the greens, but it was just, it was iridescent, the, 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 the depth of the lake and the beauty of the hues as they moved together. And I remember seeing a little small speck of a boat that was out there cutting through those emerald waters. And I thought, this is gorgeous. I wish I could go to that place. I wish I could be there. I wish I could see it. Well, does anyone know what that is? That, that place? That is, that is Lake Tahoe. And in fact, the uh, Emerald Cove, which is very famous, is, is the, the little, you can see it's kind of just down the bottom there at about six o'clock, seven o'clock, little, little, uh, uh, little bay there, little, little jaws, just allowing some water to come in. And, and so Elizabeth and I actually got to go there. I flew her out halfway through my training. We had a three or four day weekend and, and we went up to Tahoe and we hiked around and I got to see its beauty, not only from the aircraft, but also from the, the ground and got to enjoy it that way. Daniel is like that as well. Um, you can, that's good, Steve. You can take that one off. You, you get to see what God is doing on the ground level in the individual lives of the saints, especially Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you see how God is sovereign and protects them as they're faithful and as, as an exile people through in a, in a foreign, sometimes hostile land. But, but then the second half of the book zooms out so that you can see God working at a 30,000-foot view, through huge swaths of history. And, and Daniel 7, where we're going to be tonight, is in the middle of the book. And here is where we start to pick up visions of what God is going to do. And tonight, we're just going to read the first 12 verses. 
Let's give careful attention now to God's word as he starts to give us this wide-angle view of history. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and its mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is God's word. Well, there's a lot going on here, and even in these 12 verses... There's a lot we won't talk about tonight, but we'll look at more as we go through these last six chapters of Daniel. And yet, the one thing that we've talked about already in the first part of Daniel, and although we're going to get into some of the details tonight, which are important, the big thing that you should come away with is that our God is a big God and He is in control. And so, although we are going to start looking down and saying, well, what could this mean or what might this mean, we never want those details to distract us from the big picture that we receive, that God is in control. And you see this even as these beasts are coming up. Now, we'll see in a minute that the beasts have a strong resemblance to Daniel's, to the dream in chapter 2. We'll see some of these, there's some connections there, but yet this is different. For the first time, Daniel in this book is receiving a vision himself. Before, he was interpreting visions that God sent to kings. Now it's direct revelation to him. And what he sees is incredibly disturbing. Each of these beasts represent a period of human rule that is that is set itself up against 
God's sovereign kingship, right? Each one of these, in their own way, are a challenge to God as king. Now, we'll talk about the dream a little bit more, but first, let's just look at the impact that it would have had on Daniel. The, the emotional impact is he's having this dream at night. We don't know if he was awake already or he was woken up out of his sleep, but these were, these were night dreams, and they were extremely disturbing. And one of the images that's extremely disturbing is that it's the sea. Right? And for, for Jewish Hebrew people, this was not, the sea was not a happy place. It symbolized chaos and destruction. That's why it was, by the way, doubly terrible for Jonah to be thrown into the sea. That's why it's doubly wonderful for God to part and control the Red Sea. And that's why in the book of the Revelation, book of Revelation, John says, and there was no sea. God has removed that picture of chaos. And here when it says the four winds are blowing, it really it's talking about just whipping up the sea into a chaotic frenzy. There's this maelstorm of the sea by the shore, and out of the sea comes four hideous creatures. And they are fierce, and they are horrible to look at. But also, one of the things that you have to realize is they would have not just been horrible, but they would have been disgusting. They would have been revolting to Daniel. They wouldn't have been, they didn't have a category of science fiction back then where he was at, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll, uh, that it would have, it would have taken him back and made him start. Uh, one of the commentators points out that it, Hebrew mind did not allow for things to be mixed, right? In fact, that was God's created order didn't allow for that. Things were created according to their kind for a reason. And you remember in the purity laws that they were not allowed to mix different types of seeds or fabric because things were supposed to be whole and according to their kind. It really represented God's shalom, his peace, his wholeness, his dominion over a good creation. These are twisted, mixed up mishmashes of creation and power. And then the fourth beast is completely different from the others. Not only did it crush everything in sight, but it had horns. Horns symbolize strength or a kingdom or rule. And then there's this, this little horn who spoke of boastful things. We'll talk about the little horn more some other sermon. But these are, these are the beginnings now. This fourth beast especially is the beginning of what we would call of apocalyptic uh, genre. It's apocalyptic images, right, where... You're not necessarily supposed to take a picture and paint a picture of it and try to make sense of it, but there's symbolism, there's an emotional impact that you receive, and it's supposed to overload your mind as, as you kind of almost absorb the truth. And you can see why Daniel would say then, um, in, in verse 15, although we didn't read this, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head Alarmed me. Now, this is this is this wasn't like oh cool this is this is the this is the next new movie that I'm watching. This is earth shattering and shocking. And yet also alongside those beasts and right after there is the vision of the ancient of days. Now clearly this is Yahweh. This is the covenant God, the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's the only day where he, it's the only part where he's called in the Bible. Ancient of days explicitly, but, but the idea is that he is eternal and all-powerful. And here he is the judge on his throne. And you see his, his qualities as judge as being pure, white, and holiness, and majesty, and his strength, and the fire of his chariots, the, the burning, and the entire legion of angels who do his bidding. 
And when you, st- and you read this, you just need to stop and meditate on who our God is as we think about our world and we think about where we are, perhaps even on discouragement. This is a passage that can pull you out of yourself and, and make real intercession to God. And what you need to see here, and I think this is one of the most important points, that the beasts have no power over the Ancient of Days. None whatsoever. Every one of them is on a leash. The first one is it's placed down, right? It's placed down, it doesn't, and then its wings are removed. The second one is given a command go and devour much flesh. The third one is given the dominion. It doesn't take it. It's given to him for a time. And the fourth one is finally judged and slain. And so in each one of these, whatever, you see the point again, whatever it might look like in history, no matter how bad it seems, God is the one who has given dominion to this beast, this kingdom for a time, and he is in control. So that's kind of the, the, the quick takeaway as we see the big picture of these visions in Daniel. And there are some Reformed commentators that would basically say, that's all we can find out. Let's just, you know, there we go, close up, go home. I do think, though, you see, um, in fact, one that I, I find very helpful. I think you do see here, though, God giving us a little bit more about what will be work happening in history. So, so let's go and look at how these beasts um, play together. Uh, but before that, before we look into the details, I do want to say we need to also see how Daniel is the turning point and the linchpin of, of the book of Daniel. How this is the very center where we get this, this vision. Um, go ahead and put the next slide up. Now, when we were going through the first couple of chapters, there were all kinds of neat literary devices going on and, and uh, themes that you could see coming back and forth. But I purposely decided not to show them because I wanted to preach them as stories and not get into the, the geeky literature stuff and just say how, how this is all going. But I want you to see how the book of Daniel really is held together quite coherently. So here you see what you would call a chiasm, where you see some parallels on either side. Chapter 1 is the introduction of the book. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are both visions, right? There's the visions of the the four kingdoms to the statue, and then the vision of the four kingdoms to the beasts. Um, And then you see chapter 3 and chapter 6, stories of deliverance. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace. And then Daniel from the lions in chapter 6. And then you get to... Discipline of a king who, who repents, and then discipline of a king who does not and is judged. And at the very center of that chapter 4 and 5 is what I read for the call to worship, about how God is king over all. And no king or kingdom can get in the way or pull his plan or say to him, what have you done? And it's important to see how this fits together because there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, Daniel was written a lot later. It's, it's not a very good literary source. Um, what you're going to see now is we're going to start looking at kingdoms and history is that the first part of the book is tied together. And, of course, it was also written in Aram- Aramaic. But chapter 7 ties the rest of the book, 7 through or 8 through 12, to the first part of the book because 7 is not only connected to the first six chapters, but also seven's connected to the rest of the chapters. See, 
7 through 12 is also a unit in the fact that now we're going to have apocalyptic dreams. So although there were dreams in chapter 7, which is similar to chapter 2, they're different, right? They come to Daniel, and also they're a much different style of dream, right? This is where the imagery gets put all together. And also, this is what Daniel sees and, and not the king's. And you will see how the rest of the chapters fill out the visions of, of both of those chapters. So as we go on, I just want you to see that this book is a coherent whole that works together to talk about God's plan. So while we are on this 30,000 foot tour, I want to show you how you start connecting these points. So the question is, how do you interpret the dreams? Steve, can you put the next slide up there? So how do you interpret the dreams of chapter 2 and chapter 4? So here we have here we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then we've got some, you know, artistic visualization of what what the beasts may have looked like as Daniel was seeing them. Well, wh- what do you do here? Well, first of all, I want you to see there's actually a question about the first three kingdoms, the lion, the bear and the leopard and the head of gold, the head of uh, the, the the torso of silver and and the bronze. Uh, there are some people who would actually say that this was not what we would normally think now of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but it was Babylon, Media, Persia, and then Greece. It's a little different, right? And I wouldn't even perhaps give them a, a time of day, but I thought, well... Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting to learn how, how, how you might want to interpret scripture here. And, I, and, and also, there's a few evangelicals who would kind of argue for this, too. That it's, that fourth kingdom is actually Alexander the Great. And just listen to how they might say it. Well, Babylon, everyone agrees, the head of gold and the lion. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in fact, the lion who's, who uh, becomes like a man, very much like Nebuchadnezzar, the beast who has returned to sanity. Very, very much. Everyone agrees, Babylon. But then they would say, well, media who was the bear, conquered three nations. All right, so, and, and Isaiah actually says, Jeremiah says this, there's Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. You, you could look at Jeremiah 51. And so, so those, those ribs are actually, those are the, the nations of Persia, or Media, and then Persia was actually the, the four-headed leopard, and they were known for their quick assaults and, and uh, taking over Arabia compared to the slow and pondering Mede bear. And then Greece, under Alexander the Great, crushed everything in sight. And they would actually say, Rome actually didn't conquer the territories of these three other kings. In fact, Parthian Empire, if you know where that is, that was actually the empire that was best um, at kind of resisting Rome's attacks. So they would say, see, so Rome doesn't actually fit there, it's actually Greece. And then the Ten Horns would be the development of the provinces, three of which might have been upturned under... Um, a king who began, eventually became the father of Antiochus IV, who would persecute the Jews, and we'll talk about him in chapter 8. And so that would be the argument. Well, the pros are, is that it does actually make the little horn that we just talked about very simple. We'll talk about, there's actually two horns in Daniel. Well, this actually makes it one. It's just Antiochus IV. He's the, he's the persecutor of the Jews before Jesus comes, about 175 years or so. And, and there's a couple other little links in Daniel that, that could possibly, you could say that works. And then 
historians at the time of Jesus classified four empires as the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Macedonians, the Greeks. So they would say, hey, look, at the time of Jesus, this is the way they viewed things. Well, there's, there's actually, um, there's only just two, two really big problems with that. And it comes from the book of Daniel. And so I read this, and I thought, you know, that, that's really convincing if you haven't read Daniel. Just go over to Daniel chapter 3, chapter 8, verse 3. Daniel sees another dream. Verse 3, he says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And then if you go to verse 20, the dream is explained, and it says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So what the book of Daniel is saying is that Media and Persia are the same kingdom, and in fact, he never separates them in the book of Daniel. So what you have here is that scholars have taken the historical context of a different time more seriously than the historicity of the book of Daniel itself. So if you read Daniel on its own, that interpretation falls away. So here's how I think we should look at it. Next slide, please. So we see here the, the first is Babylon, the second media Persia is the silver chest and the bear on its side. Greece would be either the, the bronze belly and, and the leopard, and, and then the four heads would, would be the four parts of the kingdom when, when Alexander the Great dies. But then what do you do about the fourth kingdom? You notice that both, that there's some spots missing here. We'll fill them out in chapters 8 through 12. But also underneath Greece, underneath Rome, we have some spots missing here. And this is where your head can really start to turn as you're trying to say, what do you do with the four beasts, the fourth beast? Is it Rome or isn't it? Is it Rome or isn't it? There's really only two possible options here from the book of Daniel, that the, the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, or it is a final kingdom empire that is still coming and is waiting to be fulfilled in the final rebellious kingdom before Jesus comes back. Those are kind of the two, the two options that, that the church has had when you look at it. And, and the arguments go back and forth. You could say that the Rome is the fourth kingdom. It, it seems to fit the bill. It, it started from a small republic state that became a, an empire that crushed the world, known world with terrifying efficiency. It, really, it made the whole Mediterranean basin its empire. You, could, you can point to ten provisional puppet kings. Right? So there's a, there's a ten there. And, and some have even talked about perhaps the, um, the, the three, the triumvirate that came before eventually you had Nero, who persecuted Christians. And eventually, we're going to hear times, times and a half a time, three and a half years, it's going to come up in Daniel, for a period that was close to three and a half years. More convincingly, the saints in John's time thought the beast was Rome. And Jewish writers around that time also said the beast was Rome. So you kind of get an idea of what the Jewish people were thinking. And when you look at the book of Revelation, Christians called Rome Babylon. And John talks about how Babylon has fallen, that's tied to the beast. There's definitely some, some much to be said that, that Rome is, 
is the beast. And yet you can argue the other way, right? Those, there would be those who would say, well, if you look at the, um, if you looked at the statue, right, the statue was destroyed and the kingdom came and the beast was slain and the kingdom came. And so the beast can't really come until right before Jesus comes. That would be the argument. And they say, I mean, Rome, by all accounts, was on its last gasp in 476 A.D. And, and Jesus has not been back for a long time. And there would be some who would say, well, the Holy Roman Empire, and that's what, that's what Calvin thought, right? But, but that's gone. You can't, you can't make that work. And, and Rome didn't conquer all the known world, let alone the empires that we, we saw that were Persia, Babylon, and, and Greece. So which is it? Some of you might like want to dig into this, and some of you could say, just, just tell me what it is so I can believe it, and we can, we can get on with this, right? Um, well, let me tell you that there's, there's, there's tons of variations, but there is, as I, as I said, there's basically two, two schools of interpretation, right? Um, that, that Rome was, that Rome was the beast, and this is what, what Calvin, the early reformers would have believed, and they would have even continued down that the, the Pope was, was Rome. Um, there would be some today who would be preterists who think that, that, um, all of this happened back in Roman times, but, but yet Jesus is coming back. And then those who would think that the, the, the kingdom is, the beast is still future completely would be more of our dispensational brothers and sisters, right? Who, who, who take a more literal view and just say, there's just so many things here that if we, if we, if we have a very literal understanding that it hasn't been fulfilled, that it couldn't have happened yet. And so it's still coming. Well, the question really comes down to, well, what if God is the fifth kingdom, the stone, right? Because, you know, the dispensationalists say that the kingdom won't come and it won't build and, and grow until the, the statue is smashed and the beast is slain. But what if it's, what if we could have both at the same time? A little bit of both, right? What, what if the kingdom's coming was not a once and all for event, but it started when the Messiah came? In that sense, then the kingdom did start at the time of Rome, right? And in fact, in Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, um, something, the kingdom was put in place that would eventually destroy Rome. And in fact, Hebrews 1 talks about that in this last days, right? Now, God has revealed himself through his son. Something has already happened that we're talking about the end times that we could tie back to Daniel. Judgment has happened, and Jesus' judgment is his death and the destruction of Jerusalem. The kingdom in some way has come, because Jesus has said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what if we could view that the kingdom has come, and yet we could also agree with our dispensational brothers and sisters, though perhaps for different reasons, that you know you're right. Rome doesn't completely fill this idea of the beast. There's, there are some things that if you have to say Rome does all of this, it's a little hard. And the Christians certainly believe that Rome was, was the beast. And so what, what you can say is that I think that Rome is a partial fulfillment. And we have this throughout scripture. And we'll actually see this with Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the little horn that is, that is a, a, he's a beginning fulfillment of the beast, but he's not the final one. And, and so Rome is this partial fulfillment. But there will be a final one. In fact, you might say there's the beast comes back. 
in, in, in Hitler and Stalin as they're, as they're crushing and attacking and fighting against God's people. You, you, could, you could even make that case, right? And so if that's the case, then you actually get what I think is the best of both worlds. Because if you say that the beast is just Rome, or the beast is still to come, what you've done is you've disconnected Jesus' first coming from his second coming. Somehow, these, these are working together, but we don't quite see how it is. But if the fact is true that, that the beast is defeated when Jesus comes, but it won't be finally defeated until he comes back, then you can start to see a picture how God is working. You know, the, the, the Romans, certainly, the, the Christians in Rome, where Caesar is Lord, there's the little horn that boasts, right? They, they see it. They see it. And yet, we are here, 18, 19, 20 centuries later, still waiting for that final thing. So that is how I understand it. You know what, could you go ahead, Steve, and advance the next slide? And, and what you see here is, you've, you've probably seen this before, this is, this is a, a slide of what we would call... Um, you know, inaugurated eschatology, right? So the bottom line is the end time, the time of promise in the Old Testament. And then when the cross comes, we've come into the, the present age, but which is also the beginning of the last days. And, and then we've already seen, though, at the upper line, that the age to come has started, but it won't be fully realized until Christ comes. And so there's this in-between where the stakes are incredibly high. Because the king has already come, and yet Satan is still, he's bound, but he's ravaging the world, right? That's, that's, that's kind of a, a way to look at this, and how you can also make sense of how Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand, and yet we're still praying that the kingdom will come. That the New Testament writers can talk about this being the last day and the last hour, and yet we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, and we're waiting for the last hour. I would say that this understanding, what we would call eschatology, understanding of the last times, and notice we would say eschatology started at the cross, right? Not when, not when Jesus is going to come back. It's already started, his resurrection. This is something that you hold tightly, but not with a death grip, right? Uh, we talk about sometimes right doctrine, which you will die on and die for, um, right beliefs, systems of doctrines that come out of what, what's the creeds, and then right opinion. This is, I would say, this is one of those, this is right, right belief. It's in the middle, right? And if, if we have a brother or a sister who is a dispensational brother and sister, and I, mean, I, I talked to a guy who, clearly not the best representation, but you know, he was into conspiracy theories, and they're about to bring the Red Bull into... Jerusalem, and so we know that the time is at end, and all those things. And I, I know much, many brothers and sisters who are dispensationalists that would probably also kind of recoil in horror. But there are definite implications of how you view these things, and yet you don't lose the gospel, right? There are brothers and sisters who very much differ, um, might affect their ministry, might say they waste energy, um, and yet they haven't lost the gospel. So. Although we, as we look at these details and we're trying to understand what God has given us, it is precise enough that we can know that God is in control, and yet vague enough that we can't know when. And so that's why, if you ever hear someone on a sermon, or a book, or a radio, 
say, I have done a couple calculations, and I know the day when Jesus is coming back. I know the signs. I have seen the ten signs of the horns of the beast. Run. Run. And do not look back. Jesus said, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. Only the Father knows the hour. And yet you know that God is in control. And even though you can't get to the ground and examine all the details, as we look at this picture from 30,000 feet, I hope it makes you say, man, I wish I could go there. And I can't wait until I can be there. We can be part and see where, the, where it will all end up. So let's pray. Um, Father, would you give us patience as we pilgrim in this world? Would you help us now as, as we want to know, we want to see what you're doing, what you're up to, even 2,000 years after Jesus' return? But at the same time, would you help us to entrust it to your hand, knowing that you are good and in control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.